You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Amen. Amen. Turn through your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 9. Continuing on with our series on mission, we get to a really awesome passage of scripture today. Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, please slip your hand up. Uh, Our usher would be more than happy to uh, get a copy of God's word in your hand. Please take this home. If you don't have one at home, read it, cherish it, uh, seek the Lord. You'll find him as you seek him through his word. Now, Acts chapter 9 is where we are uh, today. As you get there, let me... uh, share with you a quick story. Uh, If I were to say to you, uh, mention the song Amazing Grace, I'm sure everybody in this room has heard of it, yet I ask you this, how many of you have heard the amazing story of redemption of, of the author of the song of Amazing Grace? John Newton, at a young age, was a man who went to sea, and like most sailors of his day, he lived a life of rebellion and debauchery, and for several years he worked on slave ships, and he captured slaves and sold them in plantations in the New World, and so, so low did he sink that at one point he be actually became a slave himself, captive of another slave trader. Eventually he worked his way up to being a man who owned his own slave ship, and, and he was living the life, and he was living a life totally opposed to God, and yet one day, the combination of a big storm at sea and uh, him reading Thomas Akempis' classic imitation of Christ, John Newton, found himself on a ship desperate for God, and he called out to God and said, God, would you save me through Jesus Christ? Quite a story, like you... you totally living, opposed to God, and in this moment of calling out to God, God met him there and changed him drastically. John Newton, after this monumental moment, went on to become a leader in the evangelical movement in 18th century England, and no doubt we're still singing his song today, and the day he died on his tombstone, this is what was inscribed on his tombstone, written by Newton himself. It said this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, A servant of slavers in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. It's an awesome story, the life transformation that Jesus Christ brings us. Amazing grace wasn't just a theological truth to John Newton, it was a reality he experienced by God's grace. And history is full of stories like this, men and women whom we'd be prone to write off. We're like, well, they ever come to Christ? They'd never come to Christ. Men and women whom we'd be prone to write off, but God steps in and pens a gloriously different story than we would ever expect. It's not even just in history. You look around the room here and you see a room filled with hopeless, desperate sinners living under God's curse and God's wrath on the path to hell, But yet God, in his mercy, stepping in and saving us and and turning us from hopeless sinners into into loved and adopted saints, infused with righteousness through Jesus Christ, men and women who are loving Jesus and living on purpose for him. This is a story of God's grace. This is is what what our, our, our truth of Jesus is founded on, a God who loves us and is gracious enough to come in and rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. As we get to Acts chapter nine, we see another story, one of the most amazing conversion stories in history in the life of Saul, who would become the apostle Paul, who wrote so much of scripture. And Acts chapter nine is a a record of the conversion of Saul. This is such a major event in the book of Acts that it's recorded three times, once here uh, through the lens of Dr. Luke, who's writing the book, and then retold by Paul himself in testimony form in Acts chapter 22 and chapter 26. And really as we study this, These first few verses of Acts chapter 9, I just want you to see this this morning, the awesome reality, the salvation that God offers us through Jesus Christ. Because we don't want to put Paul on a pedestal and say, oh, look look at Saul, look at Paul, because this is the reality of what every person who's come to Christ has experienced in some way, shape, or form through God's grace. And so as we study the life of Saul, we're going to see ourselves in this passage today. And I've broken down for you in kind of the testimony form of what it's written here and, and really what it is. It's broken down into this um, by Luke for us. It's who Paul was before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and how God dramatically changed his life after Christ. And so write this down in your notes as we get into Acts chapter 9 this morning. Number one, before salvation, I was an enemy of God. 
Before salvation, I was an enemy of God just like Saul was. It says your little subtitle there, The Conversion of Saul. It's really the life-transforming story of Saul, uh, forever changed by Jesus is really a better subtitle for that. The conversion sounds so like the conversion of Saul. This is a glorious, awesome event. Listen to this, verse, chapter nine, verse one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Right off in chapter nine, we get a picture of who Saul is. We saw him already introduced to us in chapter seven, verse 58, and chapter eight, verse one. Remember who Saul was? Remember when Stephen was being stoned and they were pummeling him with stones and there was one guy standing, smiling over the whole thing, going like, yes, boys, throw them harder, throw them harder. Who was it? Saul. Then they took his clothes off and whose feet did they throw them at? Saul's feet. And so Saul in chapter eight became this big opponent of the gospel, a big opponent of the way of people. And he is, remember, he's the guy who's going to homes and ripping them out of their homes and dragging them away and beating them and killing them. And then we see him introduced here again. The story continues in chapter nine, verse one. Who was Saul? Let me tell you a little bit about Saul. He was a young man in his early 30s, a guy who was full of drive and charisma and fire in his soul. He was regarded by the rabbis as one of the most promising young men in Jerusalem. He was well-educated. He was a religious zealot. He was a Pharisee who stood under, studied under a renowned rabbi named Gamaliel. His dad also studied under him. He was a guy with some moxie. The religious leaders were like, hey, who's the up and coming? Who's the top 30 of 30 in the religious culture then? It was number one would be Saul. He had some moxie. When he spoke, people listened. When he walked, people followed By birth, he was a Jew. By citizenship, he was a Roman. By education, he was a Greek. And it seemed to the religious people he was a good guy and everything he did was right in the Jewish people's eyes. And he even thought he was following God. But he was ultimately, as we've learned, he was a Jesus hater. He was an enemy of the cross. He was a major opponent of the way. What's the way? They didn't call themselves Christians back then. They called themselves followers of the way. What's the way? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the way is simply those who follow Jesus Christ, those who follow God's way through Jesus Christ, the way of salvation. And so Saul watched this whole Jesus get crucified. He's thinking, sweet, their leader's gone. Now let's once and for all wipe this movement off the map. The Jesus movement was a really big deal to the the Jewish people, right? It It was messing with their whole system. And so Saul took it upon his shoulders. Great. Leader's gone, he thought. Let's then eradicate these way people off the map right now and put them to death once and for all. Saul was to the believers what Osama bin Laden was was to USA. Saul was to the believers what Hitler was to the Jews. Who's the most feared guy of followers of the way? Do a poll. Hey, who's the most feared person in the world? Saul. Who's the one that you'd expect least to come to Jesus Christ and join you in this battle? Who is it? Who is it? The hands down, you know what they say? All in one voice? Saul! Saul was not a nice fellow. He was opposite of God in every single way. Religious, but no heart for God. Honestly, if you study scripture... We're so quick to call out Saul. We're so quick to say, oh, what a horrible guy. Like, hey, can you believe this guy? And yet you study scripture, and scripture paints us all in the same place Saul was before Jesus Christ. Not, not that we were out, like, trying to, to murder Christians or trying to beat people up, but, but, but we all have the natural propensity to repel against God and rebel against God. We're all born with this, with this Romans 1 tells us we're all born with a sin nature. Romans 1 tells us we're all born with a futile and thinking and foolish and darkened in heart. Verse 21 tells us that, that before Christ, we all traded the truth of God for a lie. And we worshiped and served the creator rather the creature rather than the creator. And because we're so depraved in our thinking and our hearts were so wrong, this is us before Jesus Christ. That God allowed us to be filled with all kinds of unrighteousness, it says in Romans 1. Evil and covetousness and malice and envy and murder. 
and strife and deceit and maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, disobedient to parents and foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. Really, we're so quick to say, Saul, what a bad guy, but this is a picture of all of us before Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 10 and 11 ex- expand upon that whole description of what it is before we were, what we were before Christ. We were not seeking God. We couldn't even seek God on our own. Romans 3, 23, we're all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 tells us that we were enemies of God. Before Christ, I was an enemy of God. And I know we don't like to think that way. We, well, I wasn't as bad as that. And I, but, but yeah, this is the picture of, of a, the, the, the depraved heart the, that, that God shows us in the word. And, and before Christ, we, we're born with a depraved heart, total depravity. What's total depravity means? It means that sin has affected or tainted every part of who we are. The way we think has been affected by sin. The way we feel has been affected by sin. Uh, the way we speak has been affected by sin. Even the, our actions have all been affected by sin. Even in our greatest deed, it's been affected by the sinfulness that is within us. Totally depraved. First thought when I think of this picture of what I was before Christ, first thought is like, no, not me. That might be somebody else, but not me. Not before Christ. I was still a pretty good guy before Christ. And yet think back to your life before Christ. I think you can identify with, with Saul in so many ways. Think of your life before Christ. Before Christ... We didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. I, I didn't either. I knew all about God and Jesus, but I really didn't believe that he was the son of God. Before Christ, I, I'm sure you're the same, didn't want Jesus to be real in my life or anyone else's. Before Christ, I thought that being a good person was, was enough and doing good things was gonna somehow earn me merit with God and maybe my, put a lot of stock in my religious activities and going to church once in a while and but totally missing out on the reality of who God is. Before salvation, my sinful heart took me to a place where I thought I didn't need a savior and didn't want a Lord. Definitely didn't want a book to dictate my life so restricting and so confining. And every time I'd hear God's voice calling, I'd treat him like the unsolicited telemarketer at supper. Or even yet, I... Can you relate with me and with Saul? Every time I saw Jesus coming, I'd run away like he was my worst enemy when in fact he was gonna be the one to save my soul. I think we have to get the reality of how dead and how lost we are in our sinful state before Christ. We're gonna get the full reality of the glory of the gospel. If you think we're already good people, then then we think the sin's not bad, not that bad, and well, I had a little bit of sin, but sort of like I was drowning in the bathtub and someone came and rescued me. No, we were in an ocean of sin. Unable to swim to shore, totally dead, gonna drown, and yet Jesus Christ came to rescue us. If we minimize sin, we minimize the power of the gospel. Maximize the reality of our dead, hard hearts. Maximize the glory and the wonder of Jesus saving us from what he saved us from. And as we see in this story, as we see in our lives, here's the truth. Even though that's what we once were, even though that's what Saul was, here's the truth about our God today. Here's the truth about our Savior, Jesus Christ, today. He is an initiating God. He is a God who sent, Jesus is a God who came into the world to find the spiritually sick that he might supernaturally save and sanction us to his purposes. And he will stop at nothing to get the, his elect's attention and stop them in their tracks to grab a hold of our lives, of, of our lives for his purposes. This is exactly what he's doing in Saul's life here. So verses one and two really just show us, wow, who Saul was, who we were before Jesus Christ, but, but get this, the, 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 so much more to this passage. At salvation, Saul encountered a living Christ at salvation. I encountered a living Christ. In spite of myself, in spite of my sin, God still came after me to rescue me. Look at verse three. This is what he did in Saul's life in verse three. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Walking along with his little cronies, right? Like, let's get him, boys. You ever seen one of those welding lights that you're not supposed to look at, but you kind of look at because you want to see how bright it is, so you, you, you know? Try not to look at something, you're going to look at it, right? 
And you never really looked at it, but it's so bright. You know, if you look at it, it's going to make you blind. They tell you that anyways. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm always, I'm always maybe scared of that. But you could even like stand over here and you could just see this like bright light over there, you know, like you're kind of in the peripheral vision. So, so picture like walking in like this bright light just like flashing across the sky, brighter than that, brighter than the midday sun. This is probably happening at midday, just like a, a bam across the sky. Blinding, like so bright that it knocked them on their backs. This is what's happening. And falling to the ground, then he heard a voice to them saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? bright light, this booming voice from heaven. Remember when Jesus came up from being baptized, this booming voice, like, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's sort of the same thing, except this time it's Jesus behind the megaphone, not God. Saul, Saul, like, like anytime you hear your name twice, you know you probably should listen, right? Anytime my mom and dad were like, Daryl, Daryl, I'm like, all right, maybe this time they want my attention. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting here, isn't it, that Jesus is referring to himself when he's talking about all those that Saul is persecuting? Doesn't give him an option to list, list doesn't give him an option, just like sort of like, listen up, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It's really not the main part of this text, but I gotta say this. I, I love this picture that it's showing. It's showing that God is so in tune with his people that when his people hurt, he hurts. Commentator William MacDonald says it this way, pain inflicted to the, to the body on earth was felt by the head of the body in heaven. Shows you how closely Jesus is united with his people. Verse five, of course, Saul, and he says, well, who are you, Lord? Do you really think he wondered? I don't know, I wonder about this. Do you think he wondered? Do you think deep down he knew who it was? And he was like, oh my goodness, he's alive. My worst nightmare, He's alive. Or if he was really wondering, I don't know, but he asked the question. Who are you, Lord? And he said this, I am Jesus. He says it again, whom you are persecuting. Put yourself in Saul's shoes, right? That's what I was afraid of. This illuminating light, the light of the world we see in John 1, is right before Saul and grabbing his attention, verse six. Not much dialogue there. It's, a, it, it's me, Jesus. Now that I've got your attention, verse six, do this. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. I imagine I'd be pretty speechless. You would be too if that's the case, right? Hearing the voice but seeing no one. So that they're hearing but they're not seeing. Such a, such a God encounter, isn't it? Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, so he was completely blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. What's happening here? This is simply this. This is an encounter that Saul was having with the living God. Even though he didn't see God, the, the light we clearly learn in 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 15.8, he encountered God. That's where, that's where he became the apostle. To be an apostle, he had to encounter Jesus, right? This is Saul's encounter with Jesus Christ. And what an encounter it is. Think about this. It's like a sci-fi drama. It's, a, it's like, does this, did this really happen? Does this happen today? Think Saul, Mr. All That, right? He's used to standing so tall, now he's crumpled to his knees. This is what happens when we encounter Jesus Christ. Mr. Like, I got it all together. All of a sudden, he's crumpled to his knees like the bully being put in his place when the, when the real strong guy comes in. This is Saul, Mr. Big Shot, leading the charge. Now the real boss shows up, and he shrinks back, and he's being led by somebody else. The guy's like, no one leads me. Being led away by somebody else. Here's Mr. Big Mouth, who is used to giving the command. Now... He's shut up and he's following orders. This is Saul being stopped dead in his tracks through an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. So interesting as you study this text, the last person to see a resurrected Jesus was who? Stephen. The next person to see a resurrected Jesus was who? The guy who killed Stephen, Saul. Isn't God awesome? Doesn't God work in ways that are just like, wow, I would have never thought of that. That's amazing. 
This is a Jesus encounter that I don't want you just to like package as, well, look what happened to Saul, good for Saul, that's awesome, because I believe as we study this text, we can see some some clear ways that we also encounter Jesus in our lives, maybe not in the same uh, ultra-dramatic, knock-you-on-your-behind way, but we also encounter Saul. This is a picture of what salvation is for us. Here's some Jesus encounter truths for your life, life, your lives that we can take just out of this text. Number one is this, is that if, if, if we're gonna fully understand salvation and the glory of the gospel, we have to understand this, that it's Jesus who initiates every time. It's Jesus who initiates every time. Notice in this text, is Saul looking for Jesus? Is, is, is Saul one, a, a spiritual seeker who, who so wants to know God? No, he's not at all. It's the same way with us in salvation. We, we ultimately don't seek God, the scriptures tell us. God seeks us. Like a child who is lost in the woods, can't find their way home, neither can a lost sinner find their way home unless their heavenly father finds them. Jesus came, what for? To seek and to save the lost. This salvation that we glory in, this salvation that we celebrate and that we commit our lives to, it's about Jesus and not about us. First and foremost, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, no one comes unless granted by the Father. Ultimately, we don't chase Jesus down at all. I've heard this taught, I believe this for many years, but ultimately, we don't chase Jesus down at all. He chases us down. And if you think back to your own story of salvation, here's, here's somewhere, some way how it'll go. It'll go something like this. I was doing my thing, I was living for myself, I was doing what I thought best, embracing my sin and rebellion, loving it, thinking I was happy without Jesus, then one day God stepped in in an unmistakable way. Isn't that true? Think of my own story, there's there's no glory I have, and like, look how smart I am, I found Jesus, I wasn't looking for Jesus at all. He came looking for me. It makes salvation so much more, wow. We think about who we were, what we were all about, and the fact that Jesus still loved us enough to come. And remember in school when you got to pick teams and you're standing there waiting, am I gonna be picked, am I gonna be picked, am I gonna be picked, remember that? Well, Jesus came down and he picked me for his family, for his team, for his side. Like, that's awesome. I think sometimes we forget that and we Make it all about our decision, and so we walk around all proud, thinking like, look, look at me, I'm a Christian, but really, we, we have nothing to be proud about. Jesus is the one who did all the work. He initiated, he drew us, he saved us, and, and he's sanctifying us, and he's gonna glorify us one day. Jesus initiates every time is one truth we can learn from this. Another truth we can learn from this is, is also this. Jesus will reveal his very presence to us. Jesus will reveal his very presence to us, just, just like here the spiritual lights go on, Spiritual lights are going on and, and, and Saul's overwhelmed with Jesus' light in a way that he can't deny it. So, so when I am truly saved by Jesus Christ, the spiritual lights go on and I am so overwhelmed, I simply can't deny the full reality of Jesus Christ. I even love how this came out in last week's baptism stories of, of, of all the baptisms, we, the stories we heard last week of, of people uh, just saying this, that, that one day God just opened my heart and my eyes to the truth of who he is and man, it was awesome. And it was unmistakable. All the things I knew about God finally made sense. Heard sermons many a time and all of a sudden that one just all of a sudden seemed to like click in my head and heart. What's that? That's that's God's unmistakable presence revealing himself to you. That's the light of Jesus shining up. Maybe not the flash in the sky but the flash of the sky in your heart. For some, it was at the end of my rope and, and uh, gonna let go, and all of a sudden, I felt this supernatural strength grab me. I knew that Jesus was, was real, and, and this God that I've been thinking about and, and uh, heard talk to me about is, is, was finally making himself real to me. For others, it was, man, life was so difficult, and that boulder came, and I couldn't get it off, and I finally got to a place where I'm like, okay, God, I got nothing, and, and I felt the boulder being lifted off my back. And I know for sure it was God. How does God reveal himself to us? Obviously through his Holy Spirit, but through his word as well. Through his word and his spirit. This word and the spirit work in tandem in this salvation process. John 3. It's the word and the spirit of God. That's how Jesus reveals himself to us. And, and every salvation story has a story of God revealed himself to me through the word of God or someone's testimony of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. 
Third truth we can learn about our salvation experience is this. Jesus calls me to follow his leading. Jesus calls me to follow his leading. I love how Saul had to be incapacitated before he'd follow Jesus. That's so like us, isn't it? So stubborn, so determined that sometimes, sometimes God has to incapacitate us and, and put us in our place before we're actually willing to follow. But every, every conversion story, every salvation experience has an encounter with God, then a call to like, hey, now that I got your attention, come follow me. Leave all behind and follow me. Matthew 4, 19, the disciples, right? Fishing away, doing the thing, and they see Jesus. What does he say? He just says simply this, come follow me. And just like the disciples, and just like Saul, we are called to drop everything and follow my identity, my intentions, my way of life, my friends, even my religion, and simply follow Jesus. Meet Jesus, and this is true of all of our lives. If you've been truly encountered Jesus, meet Jesus, and your life will never be the, change, the same. It can't be the same. It is changed forever. It's a moment where it's like, stop the bus. Something just happened. I just met Jesus. There's a power higher than myself I must answer to. I can't run from him any longer. I must turn to Jesus in faith and repentance and truly follow him. Again, somewhere we're taught in our culture some of these things about salvation that just aren't true. One of them is all you have to do is say you love Jesus and you keep going on the same path as normal. It's just not true. If nothing's ever changed in your life as you've said you're following Jesus and, and you've never given up yourself to truly follow Jesus, then you've never truly met Jesus Christ. Fourth thing we can see is this, is Jesus saves the least, the least expected. Of all the people in the land, that the bookies were probably, the bookies were taking bets of all the people in the land, this would be the greatest odds. Here's the truth we have to learn in our lives. We can't write anybody off, including ourselves, if you're not saved yet. Jesus saves the least expected. We somehow today have a picture of who Jesus is going to save and who he's not going to save, and, and we even go after the people that we think he should save that would make good Christians, and we sometimes leave the people that we don't think would make good Christians on the sidelines going, oh, God will never save them, or we give up on them too soon, and yet this is proof in the pudding that Jesus Christ saves the least expected. 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 17, Paul's testimony. I love what he says. he says. He says this, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy and God's grace and love overflowed to me through Jesus Christ. My own paraphrase, here's what's true. Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom he says, I am the worst. But he saved me anyways that Jesus might show himself to everyone who believes and might reveal his perfect patience through my life. Jesus didn't come for the altogether. He came for the broken. Jesus didn't come for the altogether. He came for the broken and the hurting and the needy, the ones we least expect. Even this this morning, if somehow you look at your salvation story and say, well, of course God saved me. I expected that. Well, why wouldn't he save me? You've missed the glory of the story. You've missed the glory of the story. We're together like this ragtag group of people together all of us that are like why would God choose me I don't deserve this I'm just like Saul like Paul's testimony like that is me why would he choose me because in God's divine sovereignty and his divine will he has a prerogative to choose whom he draws to himself and who he does not I don't fully understand it, but we don't have to fully understand it to glory in it and to worship him because of it. Verses one to nine simply show us the power of a life that encounters Jesus Christ, the power of a Jesus encounter. Power of a Jesus encounter that changes everything. And, and this is the moment where life dramatically changed for Saul. John Newton was in a ship on an ocean. Saul was right here. Wow, uh, I, what an experience, what an encounter. His life would never be the same after this. For every believer who's also encountered Jesus, life will never be the same. It, it is physically impossible to be the same after encountering Jesus Christ as you were before. Here's a third point I want you to write down in your notes. 
Here's the third point I want you to write down in your notes. After salvation, I have never been the same. After salvation, I have never been the same. This story just gets better. Verse 10. Now there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So this is a totally, this is, this is, this is a totally different scene, right? If this was a play, like the curtain would be down, and the curtain would come back up in a whole different scene, whole different place. This is one of God's men in Damascus, probably a spiritual leader in the church. The Lord said to him in a vision, he has a vision from the Lord, like a, a, a dream that's so clear that it's obviously from God. The Holy Spirit makes it alive in him. And Ananias answers so differently than Saul, right? Compare and contrast. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him this, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Hey, Ananias, go, go, find, go to the street called Straight. That was like the main street in Damascus, one of the, the busiest streets where all the hub was. Go to the main street. It's also a picture of what God was doing in Saul's life. He was going to set him on the straight, right? He's going to set his life straight. Find this guy named Saul from Tarsus who will be praying at the house of Judas. As soon as Ananias heard Saul, can you imagine what he's thinking? Verse 12, when he has seen a, seen in a vision and a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might even regain his sight. So as he's giving this vision to Ananias, God's giving this vision to Saul. Ananias, here's Saul. Here's what he says in verse 13. But Ananias answered this, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. In other words, what he's saying is like, really, God, are you sure? Uh, God, are you aware of who Saul from Tarsus is? You sure you didn't get another Saul in here? God's like, yeah, yeah, I'm God, I get it. Verse 15. You can understand Ananias' apprehension, can't you? Probably the same apprehension we'd have if God said, hey, why don't you go and share the gospel with so-and-so, the person that we would least think would be the one. But the Lord said to him this, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is, this is God revealing to Ananias what Saul's mission is going to be, how he's going to change his life completely. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's not God here now punishing him. It's not God saying, well, he made my kids suffer, so I'm going to make him suffer. That's not it. That's just part of being on mission for God. The suffering comes with it hand in hand. He's like, he's, he's actually going to be one of you guys. And as you suffer, he's going to suffer. He's going to be identified with Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings, as he says, Paul says later on in Philippians 3. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said this, Brother Saul, don't you love Ananias' courage? Either he's really dumb, or he's got a bold faith. I don't think he's a dumb man. He just so believes that when God speaks, we ought to listen, and God can even change the most hardened heart to the softest heart. God can even take the most uh, adamant opponent and make him an advocate in his name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, look, he already believed it happened before it even happened. Not timidly, but boldly, he lays his hands and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Here it is again, right? We see it throughout all of Acts. Saved and baptized, believe and baptized, believe and baptized. What's the first, first step after salvation? Into a pool of water to get baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And this encapsulates the fullness of Saul's conversion experience. You can see why it's one of the most miraculous conversions in the Bible. Aren't you getting a sense already of like the, wow God. 
Your power is awesome to orchestrate all these events. Why did God orchestrate it this way? I believe this is the only way that the people would really see that Saul was converted of the Lord and accept them as his. Again, he had to be dramatic, right? Starting his church, starting, starting it out, out from, from scratch, and this is the only way his followers, even seeing Ananias put his hands on it, it wasn't that we now have to come and, and have hands put on us to receive the Holy Spirit. I explained that last week, but, but it's just another example of, of God saying, this is ongoing work of me in the church. This is the same. It's one and the same. This is real. It's the real deal. And then from this point on, Saul was radically different. His encounter with Jesus Christ made him a completely new man. This is salvation. It's not just like I say a prayer when I'm five. It's not having an emotional moment at summer camp. It's not hanging with the right people. True salvation experiences. I encountered the life of Jesus Christ. He put me to my knees, and when I stood up, I started to follow, and he changed me from the inside out. Reminds me of another story I read a little closer to our day and age, a story of a man named Robert Steinhardt. And whether this is a true story or not, I don't know. I'm just saying that from the outright, but it's a good story nonetheless, and so we won't pick her whether it's true or not. We'll just call it an illustration today, okay? Is that good? Don't go Googling this because I don't know. I tried. I don't know. Many preachers have told this, and it's a, it's a great story that illustrates the true change that we have in Jesus Christ. And in 1948, this guy, Robert Steinhardt, was traveling alone aboard a passenger train. I think I might have told you this a couple years ago or three or four years ago, but it's such a, a powerful story. He was traveling alone aboard a passenger train headed for New Orleans when suddenly the train was hit by lightning. And the lightning came straight through the window and it struck Robert Steinhardt and it burned his face and it burned his chest and, and uh, miraculously he survived. And uh, they got him to this Christian clinic in New Orleans and they started taking care of him. But one of the things that happened to him in the process of getting hit by lightning was he completely lost his memory. And so after they nurtured him back to health, he regained his strength and all he had on him was $63 and, his, and no ID. And so they're like, who is he? He spent eight months trying to figure out who he was. After eight months, he just gave up and he basically chose a new name. He, uh, through the ministry of the, 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 the center there, became a Christian. He started serving in the church. He was serving at the clinic. He became a builder in the community and for 15 years, life was going great. He met a woman. He had two kids, and, and one night after 15 years, a police, two police cars pull up in front of his house and come storming into his place and, and arrested him for a bank robbery and the murder of two police officers back in 1948. Something he had no recollection of. Obviously, he was on the train getting away from something he had done wrong. And so he went to court for the whole deal, and um, after much deliberation, the verdict came from the jury, and the jury said this, after weighing the evidence of the case, looking at the man, getting testimonies of, of, of everything, they said this, after weighing the evidence and testimony, we have concluded this, that this is not the same individual that gunned down two police officers 15 years ago. As far as the jury is concerned, Stanley Reed Calhoun, his real name, died on that train 15 years ago, and this man, Robert Steinhardt, is indeed a new man and therefore innocent of all charges. A lightning bolt changed the course of one man's destiny if this is a true story. And if it's not, it still serves a pretty powerful purpose. Because this is a picture of us not being hit by lightning, but encountering the risen Jesus. By encountering the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is our lightning bolt that changes the course of our lives. And it changes the destiny of where we head in life, our eternal destiny. We read this story and we see clearly in verse 17 that, that part of this whole change comes from this. It comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. It comes from a dead soul now being made alive with the life of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what acceptance of the death and burial and resurrection, that's what, that's what repentance of our sins does. It, it makes our souls alive and filled with the life of the Holy Spirit. It's, the biblical term is regeneration. So this moment when, when he's saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul's heart, his heart of stone was taken out, it says in Ezekiel, as it says in Ezekiel, and his heart of flesh was being put in. And the Holy Spirit changes everything. As we sang this morning, the gospel changes everything. 
And this heart that used to once beat against God now starts beating for God as the Holy Spirit seals and indwells the believer's life. This is true of your life. When you accepted Jesus Christ, your dead soul now became alive with the life of the Holy Spirit. For Saul, for you and I, hate turned to love, cruelty turned to kindness, rebellion turned to reverence, angst turned to peace. It's not because Jesus gives us all these things, it's because the Holy Spirit gives us Jesus and Jesus is all these things in our life. What's a sign of a truly changed life by the transforming power of Jesus? Number one, it's simply a dead soul that's now filled with the life of the Holy Spirit. Every believer can say that, that for sure, because the Holy Spirit confirms this, I have the Holy Spirit living within me and he's changed me and he's changing me continually. Here's another sign of a life that's totally been changed by the power of, of, of the cross, by the power of Jesus Christ. My blind eyes now see. My dead soul made alive. My blind eyes are made to see. Look, this, this physical blindness that Saul encountered was simply just a reflection of his spiritual blindness. Notice when the Holy Spirit comes in, the, the scales fall away and his eyes are open to see. The truth that was fully hidden is now made gloriously obvious. Up until this point, Saul's like, what is going on? What is going on? I, I, I think it's Jesus. I don't know. All of a sudden, everything becomes clear. The fuzziness of God, the fuzziness of his word becomes clear. The word of God becomes, for believers, the same thing. The word of God becomes a, not a lame book, but a life-giving truth. Truth to the believer after being saved is, is, is not like, I, I don't want anything to do with that. It's like, bring it on, bring it on. The commandments of God are not an old school thing for somebody else or a past day. The commandments of God are revolutionary. We eat them up and we soak them and we love them. Because the greatest thing about having blind eyes that are turned to sight is this, that we see God clearly. We no longer look at God as we... With confusion, he becomes clear. This is the truth of salvation, and you know it. Remember, the, remember when you were saved, and, and all of a sudden everything made sense, and you'd read the book, and you read the book, and you read the book. It's not making sense. All of a sudden, one day it's like, bam, it makes sense as the Lord leads you, and as you confess your sins and repent, all of a sudden it becomes alive. It's evidence of a changed life in Jesus Christ. Also, this my old nature becomes made new. The old nature becomes new. What's, what's Saul's mission? What's Saul's mission? To be an instrument to carry the name of Jesus. His mission is completely different. Uh, same guy as in like same personality, same gifts, same abilities, but now everything is made new to him. It's, he's, his life is being focused on the Lord. His strong convictions are now not standing for falsehood, but standing for truth. His, his relentless personality is now gonna go after people to not kill them, but to save them. His wild boldness is not going to lead him to stand before, he's going to lead him to stand before anyone and witness for the gospel. His tenacious personality is now going to persist through the hardest things for God's call. His quick mind is now going to be used for the things of God. His purpose is going to be completely revolutionized. His travel plans are going to be different. He was going to Damascus. This sets him off on missionary journeys, three of them, four of them in, in the book of Acts. His old nature is made brand new. And just like us, when we encounter Jesus Christ, our, everything becomes new. It's not that we're not, all of a sudden the introverts don't become extroverts, and extroverts don't become introverts. That's not what we're talking about here. But everything completely changes, not just our personalities, but our whole outlook on life, the whole nature that we have is made brand new. And finally this, my purpose is made clear. Saul is gonna be a chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name. He was playing a tune that was far different than that up until this point. Yes, we're saved to be Jesus' children, but we're also saved to be instruments that bring the sweet melody of the gospel to those around us. We're saved to let the Lord make a sweet tune from our lives for his glory and proclaim his name to the world around us. For many of us here, we, we get this, man. We, we look at this and we're like, man, I, I see all these parallels in my life. I, I, I can see how God worked in my life in the same way, in similar ways that God worked in Saul's life. That is encouraging. So here's what I want to tell you today. Just, just rejoice in your salvation again. 
Just rejoice in the glory that God has saved you and he's changing you and he's giving you all these new things. He's given you a soul that's alive. He's given you eyes to see. He's given you a new nature. He's given you a purpose to live this life through. He's given you a brand new life. And I'm not talking extreme makeover brand new life where you know all the doctors and dentists and designers and hairdressers show up and the fitness trainers show up in a superficial change. I'm talking about a real deep down life change. If you're saved like Saul was saved, you know it this morning because you can't deny it. Real change, lasting change that only can come through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you know that today, I just encourage you to rejoice in your salvation. Just let this passage, you know, what do we do with passages like this? We read them like, this. it's good knowledge. I just want this to be knowledge to us, do you? I want this to be a time where we can be like, wow, like salvation, I, I, I'm rekindled again with the glory of salvation. How about you do this this week as we respond to this passage? How about you take some time to remember your glory story? This is Paul's story. It's awesome. I think of my own stories. I read this this week. I'm like, part of me was like, man, I wish I was like Paul. I wish I was like Paul. But I thought, that's ridiculous. I have my own story that God has done in my life. I don't need to be Paul. You don't need to be Paul. You don't, you don't need to be some of these great apostles that went before you. You, you know what we need to stop and do more often than I think we do is just stop and realize what God has done in our lives for his glory. Stop and remember where you came from of who you were before Christ. Stop and remember the moment that you encountered Jesus Christ, however that looked in your life, the moment where you realized the lights went on, the bells and whistles went off your head, of like, wow, this guy is for real, and he came to save my soul. Remember that moment? And think about all the things God has done in your life since then. Let me tell you this, we forget where we came from, and you know what happens? Spiritual arrogance busts through the doors of our heart. Complacency creeps in. Spiritual arrogance and complacency bust through the doors of your heart. And you know what runs out the doors of your heart? A deep love for God and a compassion for others. We get into this look at me deal instead of this like, wow, look at the reality of Jesus deal. Could you just stop this week and read this story again and study it and, and, and even go back to your own life and say, wow, God, thank you for a glory story you've given me. This is awesome. I just want to once again revel in my salvation. The second thing you do is revel in God's saving grace. I think we get so busy, we get so busy doing things for God, we so often stop just to revel in the fact that God has changed me from the inside out. I encourage you this this week, if you have never done this, write out your own Jesus encounter story. Write it out. Think it through. Relive it. The way you thought, the way you felt when you first met Jesus. Consider what God is doing in your life right now and ask this, ask God just to stir within you a deep love and a deep worship for his saving grace. Here's a third thing you can do this week in response to this. Reveal your testimony. This is Paul's story. This is Paul's testimony. When is the last time you shared your God at work story? Sometimes we tell you to preach the gospel, yes, but when was the last time you did that just through telling your story? Hey, here's what God's doing in my life. Here's, here's what God has done in my life. Here's who I used to be. Here's who I am now. Like the story that you write down, like share it. Put it on Facebook. Send a text message. This is a story that's not to be kept to ourselves. This is a story to share with the world. I'm a sinner. But I've been given a savior and a whole new life in Jesus Christ. If this is your story, like Saul's, don't let this grow old and cold and stale in your heart. Where do so many believers go off the rails, I think, and faith becomes old and it doesn't mean anything anymore and they've forgotten their story of salvation. I gotta go to church today, and this is what we do, and we have to witness. Like, you've forgotten your story of salvation if that's where you are. Because when we have the reality of our salvation on the forefront of our minds, on the tip of our tongues, man, life is alive in Jesus, and he is, he is he's always glorious, but you can't help but speak of the glory of a risen God. Last application point for your lives is this. For some of you, I'm sure as I read this, you're looking at me going like, that is not my experience at all. I might be a churchgoer, I might have a lot of head knowledge in my heart, but I don't have a story, anything that resembles to what you've just shown us from Saul's life. 
say all the right things, I do all the right things, but I, I don't feel new inside. I don't have a, a, a keen eye for the truth of God. I don't have a desire to, to share Christ. I, I still have my heart of hate and my heart of, of stone. You talk about heart of stone. I have one of those. I still feel empty and not full. And here's what I encourage you to do this morning as you read this story, as you see this story, that, that this can be your come to Jesus moment. This can, be your, this can be your lightning strike. This can be the, your encounter with the cross. You realize that, man, I need Jesus more than ever before. I'm realizing it. I see it. I don't want to be the same old, same old. I want to be brand new. I, I, I want to have uh, the truth of Jesus and the truth of his life uh, pumping through my spiritual veins. I admit it. I need forgiving. Here's the deal. This could be your God. This could be your lights on moment right now. God is confronting you right now with the reality of, is your life been changed like Saul's, like every believer in history? Are you just doing the Christian thing? This is God confronting you with the reality that he wants to save you for real once and for all. He wants to bring you to your knees only to lift you back up again with the newness of life in Jesus Christ. It just takes you being willing to surrender, admit and surrender and come and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. I don't want to oppose you any longer. I don't want to run from you anymore. I simply want to come to you and I want you to be my Lord and Savior and my friend. This is what it means to be transformed in Jesus Christ. This is what it means. This is what this passage in the Bible for to show us what truly, authentically it means to have encountered Jesus Christ and being changed forever. My prayer for us is that we'd go after Jesus together and live this transformed life every day for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for these awesome reminders. This isn't one of those passages that challenges us and hammers us. It's one of those passages that really encourages us and uplifts us and strengthens us. Oh God, today I pray you'd put within every heart here the joy and the wonder of our salvation. And God, where there's that staleness creeping in, God, would you rejuvenate life in that soul with the reality that you saved us from a life of destruction and put us on the path of life. God, would you rekindle that, that joy and that love for you? God, where there is a heart here that has never truly encountered Jesus Christ and in their seat right now, they know it. Their hearts are pumping. They, 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 they've suspected it for a long time, but now they really think they know it. They've never truly had a, a God moment where you have poured your spirit into them and made everything brand new. Oh God, would you in your grace right now allow this to be their God moment and not let them walk out of this place today without first coming to the cross of Jesus Christ and letting the cross pierce their heart and change them forevermore, the reality of a, a loving Savior. And God, I pray for those who are already in this place where this is the greatest news they could have ever encountered and they're still living it every day. Oh, Father, spur us on, spur them on, Lord, to simply love you with greater fervor, to simply have boldness to testify to you at every turn, and to simply live this transformed life that you've given them, this newness of life. God, this is our greatest gift right here, a transformed life in Jesus Christ. Help us not forget. Help us not put anything before this and before you, but simply live now the reality of what we've just been studying for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.